Uh, this last week, I was with some uh, friends who are on the faculty and staff of Dallas Theological Seminary, and they, they know that we're studying the book of Revelation right now. So they said, Brian, where, where are you in the study of the book of Revelation? So we're in, we're in chapter 13. We're going to talk about the Antichrist this week, and it's going to be an awesome Sunday because uh, I'm going to reveal the identity of the Antichrist, and I'm going to reveal the date of Jesus Christ's return exactly, at, at which point my degree was revoked. Because no one knows exactly who the Antichrist is or when Jesus Christ will return, but there's a long history of fascination with the identity of the Antichrist. The early reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, that whole group, they thought that the Antichrist was the Pope. Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace, 1800s, uh, he thought it was Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, later on, World War II, at the end of World War II, there were a lot of folks saying actually through World War II that it was Hitler. More recently, it's been uh, designated as either Barack Obama or Donald Trump, depending on your political persuasion, right? But no one knows exactly who the Antichrist is. But it's interesting, the Apostle John makes this observation in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared from this we know it is the last hour. Now, do you see the implication of that verse? If no one knows when Jesus Christ is going to return, including Satan, then Satan has always had antichrists ready to go. There have always been antichrists ready and prepared. There's always been the spirit of antichrist working in the world. Uh, in nations, in governments, in cultures, in societies, in businesses, in families, permeating everything. But we know that there will come a day when the Antichrist, a particular individual, will emerge. The Apostle Paul describes him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy or the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. There will come an Antichrist in the last days, but even now there's the spirit of Antichrist, and there are Antichrists working in the world. And so what we want to do as we look at the end times is see what we can discern about that final Antichrist, and the patterns of his work that may be operating even today. So if you'll recall, we are now in the tribulation period in our study. Right? What we believe is we live in the church age. The next event will be the rapture of the church. Sometime, likely shortly after the rapture, the church being caught up, the Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel, and he will allow them to restore their worship that will mark the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period or that 70th seven-year period described in Daniel chapter 9. But in the middle of those, that seven-year period, the Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel, and he's going to persecute not only Israel, but all of God's people, all of the Gentiles who've turned to the Lord, and it will be in time of intense suffering. That's the rise and the ascendancy of the kingdom of Antichrist. And we're going to be looking at that particular period in future history this morning. But again, what we want to do is we look at that 
future history and the rise and the reign of the Antichrist and that particular Antichrist is what are the patterns that we see in his work that may even be operational today as Satan seeks to establish his kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. So if you're not there already, Revelation chapter 13, we're gonna begin reading in verse one. Actually, let's start in chapter 12, verse 17. It says, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads, and on his horns were 10 diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. First observation is this. Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit kingdom. Uh, we're looking at this morning specifically at the character of the Antichrist, the first beast, and then we're going to look at a second beast shortly after that. But then even the name Antichrist means something really significant. Remember, anti means, first of all, against, in opposition to, right? Anti-perspirant, against your perspiring, right? It's against. But it also means uh, uh, in opposite to or instead of. So the Antichrist is a Christ or a Messiah fig figure instead of the real Christ. And what's the role of the real Christ, the real Messiah? To bring life to the earth, to bring shalom, to bring the fullness of blessing, to bring God's kingdom so that people can flourish and be satisfied and fulfilled. And so what is the Antichrist, the one who's opposed to God's kingdom or instead of God's kingdom, he's promising a false kingdom, right? Satan promises life, but he delivers death. It's a counterfeit kingdom. And so we will look at three characters in this section of scripture. Uh, the first that we saw last week is the dragon. The dragon uh, represents Satan, who is a counterfeit of God the Father. The Antichrist is a counterfeit 
of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the third character who's called the second beast is the false prophet who counterfeits the Holy Spirit. That is, Satan cannot create anything. All that he can do is destroy, but he can imitate, he can counterfeit. And so in these last days, he reve Satan reveals this, this counterfeit trinity. And the intention is to draw worship away from God, to steal worship from God, to destroy God's plan, and to destroy God's people. So, First observation is this, Satan's kingdom is a counterfeit kingdom, it's an imitation kingdom. He can't create, he can only destroy. Second, Satan's kingdom is political. Satan's kingdom is political. Read with me again, chapter 13 and verse one. It says, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast, the first beast, coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads, and on his horns were 10 diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous Name. So when I uh, say political, what I mean is uh, power executed through human governments. Power executed through human governments. And what we notice, first of all, is that Satan's kingdom is a political kingdom. So notice, it says the dragon, that is Satan, the serpent of old, he's standing on uh, the sea of the seashore, and he summons out this terrible, horrific beast. Why on the sands of the sea? Well, uh, the sea was uh, a, an image of the Gentile nations, and more specifically, the great sea, the Mediterranean. So we believe this antichrist, this beast, comes from a Mediterranean nation. He comes from a Gentile nation. But we also learn uh, that the sea throughout all of biblical history is seen as a place that's, that's dark, it's foreboding, it's frightening. Evil comes out of the sea. The sea is a reflection the salt water that you cannot drink is a reflection of the curse. And so this beast comes out of the sea. He, he's, a, he's an awful, horrific individual. I mean, think Godzilla, right? Coming out, of, coming out of the sea. He's frightening. He's evil. He's emerging. So who is the Antichrist? Well, there are clues. I'm not going to tell you who it is. But there are clues in the scripture. Turn to chapter 13, very last verse, chapter 13, verse 18. John writes, here is wisdom. Let him who has an understanding, let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Ooh. A lot of speculation as to what that means. Um, long history of tradition interpreting it like this, that the numbers, when they're transliterated from Greek into Hebrew, and then a number is attached to each letter in Hebrew, it spells out Nero. Uh, you know, maybe. Um, there's a lot of symbolic language throughout all of the book of Revelation, right? We're, we're introduced to a Jezebel-like person, not Jezebel herself, or a Balaam-like person. And it could be this, that what John is saying is this future world leader, who's a political leader, is a Nero-like person. I don't think that's probably the case. I think, uh, I think it's a little more straightforward than that. Uh, on the sixth day of creation, man was made, right? God looked at all of his creation and said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he made man the pinnacle of his creation, and man is a part of that good creation. In a sense, really the best that God had created, but man is good, man is not God. His number is not the number of God. The number of God is seven, the number of perfection. The number of man is six. He's good, but he's not God. He's just a man. He's just a man. 
who emerges out of one of these nations, probably uh, in the Mediterranean. The point that's most important to understand is that he's empowered directly by Satan to destroy God's plan and to destroy God's people, to offer a counterfeit kingdom that draws people to Satan and to the worship of Satan, to allegiance to Satan, rather than fulfilling their design as being made in the image of God and worshiping God. So turn back again to the beginning of chapter 13 and read with me again verse 2. Verse 1, let's read verse 1. It says, Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, remember I said there's a lot of uh, symbolic language throughout the book of Revelation, and as a result, a lot of people go, ooh, I don't know, I can't interpret it, I don't want, I don't want to touch it, and we avoid it, even though a blessing is promised to those who read and listen and obey the things that are written in it. Also, I reminded you that one of the keys to interpretation is just look in the context, because often the symbols are explained in the context, or they're explained by an allusion to something in the Old Testament. Now, the, the horns and the heads are actually explained for us in chapter 17. So turn to Revelation chapter 17 and read with me verse 9. Revelation 17 verse 9. Uh, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman, that is Babylon, we'll talk about in a couple weeks, sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So what are the seven heads? The seven heads are seven consecutive kings. And notice what he says here again in verse 10. They are seven kings. Five have fallen. They're kings who represent their kingdoms. Five of them have already passed. They've already fallen. These are the kingdoms of the world. We're looking at Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. So five have fallen. Those five great kingdoms of the world have fallen. One is, that is Rome. When John writes, Rome is the predominant kingdom of the world. And one is yet to come. That is the kingdom of the Antichrist. So, back in chapter 13, verse 2, he says, I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads. What are the seven heads? Those are seven consecutive kingdoms. Five have fallen. One is that is Rome. One is yet to come. It's the kingdom of the Antichrist. But he also has ten horns. Right? He has ten horns. Who are the ten horns? Chapter 17, again, And verse 12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. The ten horns are ten kings who reign simultaneously with the Antichrist. They're a confederation of kingdoms who ultimately give their authority and rule and reign underneath the authority of the beast for an hour, for a short period of time. So the seven heads are seven consecutive kingdoms. The ten horns are ten simultaneous kings who rule and reign with the Antichrist under his authority in his kingdom. Now, back to chapter 13. There's more imagery for us to unpack here. Verse 2 says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth 
of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So we interpret these symbols by looking in the immediate context. Sometimes John explains. And then other times, John is making an allusion to something back in the Old Testament. And we said, what book in the Old Testament is the key to interpreting the book of Revelation? It's Daniel, right? It's the book of Daniel. And for those who are familiar with Daniel, they would have seen this, this, image, this imagery of the beast and the, the, the leopard and the lion and the bear, and they would have immediately thought, Daniel chapter 7. So hold your place here in Revelation 13 and turn back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. If you haven't done so already, just fold a page down there because if you're in Revelation, you're just going to be flipping back and forth to the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Behold, another beast, the second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, Dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had a large and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its feet with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So Daniel's vision, there are four beasts who are four consecutive kingdoms. He's talking about Babylon, which was overcome by Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. In Revelation 13, there's just one beast, and he's an amalgamation of these four, right? So what John is saying is that the beast that he saw was, was this, this, this amalgamation of, of all of the worst and most terrible properties of all of the kingdoms that have gone before. It's like a lion, it's like a bear, it's like a leopard, it's like this horrible, evil world power all rolled into one in the kingdom of the Antichrist. As one writer described it, it's like an apocalyptic Frankenstein. It's just the worst of the worst. Now turn to verse 23 of Daniel chapter 7. He writes, Thus Daniel said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in the times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So, 
Satan has always been trying to establish a counterfeit kingdom alongside of and in place of the kingdom of God. And so there are patterns in all of world history and in all of the kingdoms. And Satan, not knowing the time and return of Jesus, uh, that Jesus will come back, has always had antichrists who are ready to emerge. Always, there have always been false, evil rulers in these kingdoms who can emerge. And as these patterns emerge, Daniel sees, sees these kingdoms rise and fall. The final one is Rome. But there are parallels between that final Roman kingdom that fell and the future emergence of Antichrist kingdom. So people think, you know what, that final kingdom may be a revitalization, a reemergence of the kingdom of Rome out of which Antichrist will emerge, being one of the 10, but overpowering and overtaking the 10. And his kingdom will be worse than any kingdom that has ever existed on the face of the earth. So the kingdom of Antichrist will be a political kingdom. It will be a kingdom that exerts its power through human authorities. Now, what's the appeal of that to people? How is it that people would want to be a part of that? Because often people put their hope in political power, either through intimidation, they want to be a part of it because they don't want to be crushed by it, or they believe in it and they believe it will bring them hope. I'm going to read you a quote here. This is from a man... Uh, named Paul Henry Spock. He was a prime minister of Belgium in the 30s and 40s, and then he was the first president of the UN General Assembly in 1945, right? So as the world is finally emerging from World War II, and there's so much death and so much devastation, and, uh, and there's, there's societal chaos and there's economic chaos, he made this statement. He said, we do not need another committee. We have too many already. What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the allegiance of all people and to lift us out of the economic morass into which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. People put faith in political power to save them. Timothy Keller made a, a little more subdued but similar observation. He said, it is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into a kind of religion because we are looking for salvation. Matt sent me a really interesting uh, survey that he discovered this week. It was from Penn State's research group. And what they discovered, this is from 2022, in an election year, in an election cycle, what they discovered is that people have more hope in, in political, in politics and what politics can accomplish for them than anything else right now. Did you catch that? People have more hope in politics for the future than they have in anything else, which really surprised me. But uh, Democrats have hope because they've got Senate, Congress, and the presidency. Republicans have hope because they think they can get one or two of those back. And so what Americans have their greatest hope in right now is politics. They might despise a few political leaders who are on the other side of the aisle, but they believe that in political power there is a form of salvation. Church, we're still vulnerable to that. Hey, we're still vulnerable to that false hope. When we feel powerless, 
when we feel marginalized by society, when we feel that culture and history is beginning to move against us, we can reach out and grasp for the salvation of political power. And we have to remember, especially in November, that we have a hope that transcends political power. We know that our ruler, Jesus Christ, is more powerful than any ruler. His kingdom will last forever, and he is good, and he offers life, and he offers hope. Even if all of culture and history turns against us, which it has frequently turned against the followers of Jesus Christ and will again turn against the followers of Jesus Christ, our hope is in Jesus and in nothing else, okay? Nothing else. Still, go vote, but your hope is in Jesus, right? So, the kingdom of Satan is political. Second, it is religious, and there's a wedding of religious and political power in his kingdom. Turn back to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 3. It says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? So his ascendancy to power is fueled by this counterfeit resurrection. And it, after this counterfeit resurrection, there emerges a second beast who apparently like manages his social media and he begins to proclaim the greatness of the first beast, the Antichrist. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. John writes, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a, like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the, the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So notice it says he has horns, so he has power and authority, but he doesn't have crowns. He's not political. He has power and authority, but he's not political. He is religious. He is also animated and empowered by the dragon. He speaks as a dragon. And the intention of these two beasts is to uh, diminish God in people's eyes and divert their attention to the worship of Satan. So, You'll notice on the heads of the beast are blasphemous names, and he speaks blasphemies. He denigrates God. This is, what, this is where Satan started when he tempted Eve in the garden. He doubted God's truthfulness. Has God really said? Is that what God is actually intending? Is God really good? Is he withholding something good from you? God has not said. Remember, as Oswald Sanders said, the, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. He plants that seed of suspicion in Eve. He plants it in people. He plants that seed of, of denigrating the, the, the goodness and the beauty and the glory and the power of God to divert attention away from God so that people would worship and serve Satan. Notice what he says there in chapter 13 and verse 4. 
It says, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to, be, to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? That is a declaration of worship. Let me give you one illustration. Exodus chapter 15. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? It's throughout all the Old Testament. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? And what is the rallying cry of Satan's kingdom? Who is like the beast? Who is like the dragon? And they turn and they worship the beast who gives his authority and worship to the dragon. Paul said again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness will be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He is a political leader who demands worship and demands complete obedience. Now, how does the second beast or the false prophet help in this process? Chapter 13, verse 12. He exercises all of the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Uh, what he does is, is he preaches the resurrection. Right? He, he preaches the death and the resurrection, the false, the counterfeit death and resurrection of the counterfeit Messiah. And then he even performs signs to reinforce his version of truth and salvation. Verse 13, he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men, right? So he imitates the miracles of Moses and Elijah. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that lawlessness will be revealed, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. And Jesus warned his followers of this. He said, for false messiahs, and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead any, if possible, even the elect, to draw worship away from God, to denigrate the beauty and the goodness and the power of God. Now, our world is filled with false religion, it's everywhere. And you ever asked yourself, why is that appealing? What are people looking for? I would argue what they're looking for is they're looking for transcendence. They're looking for something that shows them that there is actually more to life than what they're experiencing right now, that there's hope beyond the grave, that death is not the final statement, and now they have a resurrected Messiah figure who gives them hope that they will be, there will be life that goes beyond, but they're also looking for, for meaning and significance in this life. There's more to this life, that they can find identity and, and meaning and purpose in this life. Men and women, uh, you know, we, we, live, we live in a culture and we don't sometimes just understand the nature of our culture, but this is everywhere around us. Our culture is saying, there is a way that you can find identity apart from your creator. Are you following me? 
Our culture is saying you can find identity apart from what your creator says about who you are and, and why you exist. You can find meaning and purpose apart from who your creator says you are and why you are here. And so people are chasing after that and they find that in, in false religion. They're looking for that transcendence. One of the greatest biblical illustrations is the Tower of Babel. Remember God said, here's the mandate for men and women made in my image. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule and reign on my behalf, carry my name and my reputation throughout all of my creation. And at the Tower of Babel, what do they do? They said, you know what? Let's not go out, let's come together and let's build a tower that ascends into heaven and let's make a name for ourselves. We will find our identity in ourselves. We will find meaning and purpose in ourselves, and we will get there. We will ascend even into heaven. And in the last days and in our days, Satan is offering people to find meaning and purpose and identity apart from the creator. It's satanic. So the kingdom of Satan is political. It is religious it is also economic. Chapter 13, verse 16, it says, he causes all the small and the great, the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So uh, apart from uh, 666, this is one of the most intriguing verses in all the book of Revelation. Uh, what is it? What's the mark of the beast? When I was growing up, uh, that's when barcodes started to emerge and Christians began to say, the, the barcode, the barcode is the mark of the beast. Technology now exists. So if the government starts telling you to get a barcode placed on your hand or your forehead, don't do it. It's the mark of the beast, mark of the beast, right? So that was the big thing. You know, now, now we all love uh, self-checkout at the grocery store. So we're like, whatever. We love barcodes, right? Just zing, 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 zing. We just go with it. So now I'm convinced it's not the barcode, it's Apple Pay. <laughs> Apple Pay is the barcode, right? Because all, you you, all you need is just your phone and you can go anywhere and you can do anything. And have you ever noticed that, that for, for Apple, there's a bite out of the apple? <laughs> like the garden, just saying. I don't know who, who the Antichrist is. I'm not exactly sure what 666 is. I don't know what the mark of the beast is. I don't know if it's technological. What I do know is what it represents is people are willing to say, I, I align with his kingdom. I align with the Antichrist. I align with the dragon. I align with the false prophet. I'm giving my allegiance, my life to them. And this is powerful because one of the most... Uh, Insidious idols that can creep into our life is, is wealth or what wealth provides for us. In this case, uh, it's safety and security. You know, it's interesting in the Bible, wealth is, not, is really kind of considered, it's a neutral thing, but it can easily become an idol. And it becomes an idol based on, on how you think about wealth and what you use wealth for. In this case, uh, it's for safety, it's security. Those who don't have the mark of the beast, they're gonna struggle, they're gonna suffer. And many of them, honestly, if they remain faithful to Jesus Christ, they're gonna die of hunger. And wealth can provide safety and security. So why do people want a retirement account that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger more than they could ever possibly spend in a lifetime? Because it's safety, they, they hoard. Or sometimes wealth provides power. In, in this culture, it can be a thing of power, it could be a thing of 
prestige. It can be a way to have, have greater pleasures, but wealth becomes an idol. And the Antichrist knows this. He knows this vulnerability, so he taps into it, and he takes control of the entire economic system. So if I can sum it up like this, Satan's kingdom is all-consuming. It's national, it's global, it's, it's governmental, it's personal, it's religious, it's economic. It infiltrates into families and into neighborhoods and into entire cultures. It's, it's all-consuming. It, it is Satan's attempt to say, I am the only source of life. My kingdom is the kingdom that will give you identity and meaning, and purpose, and belonging. Satan promises life, but he can only deliver death. And this is how it's always been. I want to share a quote with you from a modern-day poet, songwriter, philosopher, Halsey. Which I realize only half of you this morning know who that is, but uh, the words are significant nonetheless. She made this observation. She said that I, f- I find that often there's a deep sadness inside me that no amount of worldly pleasure can touch, a loneliness, an emptiness. I wonder often if I chose the wrong life for myself and the weight of it is suffocating. People are susceptible to deceit because we do have these longings placed within us by God. And we believe Satan's lies that we can find those longings, those deep desires of our soul met outside of God. And the end is it's destruction, it's sadness, it's despair, and it's fear. Good news is this, uh, Satan's kingdom will not last. Turn to chapter 14 and verse 6. John says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. Now, we're not gonna dig into a lot of the details of chapter 14 yet because what chapter 14 is, is it's a preview of the rest of the story. And what plays out in the remaining chapters is this, Satan's kingdom falls. It, is, it just crumbles, it's destroyed. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ emerges and it's everlasting and it cannot be touched. And even in the midst of Satan's kingdom crumbling and falling, there's an angel that's flying through the heavens and he's announcing the eternal gospel and he's saying, you find life in Jesus, you, do, you find death in Satan. And hope is held out for anyone who chooses to believe all throughout the remainder of these end times, but it will end a certain way. And so we have hope. You can stay here in Revelation, but I wanna read to you from Daniel chapter seven. I'm reading Daniel chapter seven, verses nine through 11. It says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, that is the Antichrist, was speaking. 
I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen and amen. Now, how do you apply this? I'm gonna give you three words to think about this week. The first is discern, discern. In the book of First Chronicles, it says the men of, of Issachar, these were men who, they, they understood the times. They just, they, they looked around and they said, okay, this is what's actually happening. Here's the subtext of this battle between kingdoms. They discerned the times. You've heard the, the statement before, um, fish are in water, don't know that it's wet. They're just living in it. And I would say that the same is true of us so often. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, we live in these cultures and we have a hard time realizing uh, these, the cultures that we live in, they're, they're influenced by Satan. There's, there's deceit all around us. And sometimes we need to just hop up on the shore and look down and understand the, the nature of the cultures that we live in and the society that we live in and how Satan's deceit has worked its way in and promised us life, but can only deliver death. And so I want you to begin to pay attention to the things you're not paying attention to, maybe the things that you just automatically believe without criticizing them. Second word I want you to think about this week is hope. We have hope. The kingdom of Jesus will come and he will rule and reign forever. And even as things get horrible in the second half of the tribulation period, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's sending an angel to proclaim hope and life, the gospel and truth. And so I want us to remember that if we have hope, we have an opportunity to share that hope. And let's not take it lightly. There is only one hope for the world, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the gospel. Good news. You're made in the image of God and God wants a relationship with you. Bad news, you're broken by sin. You have chosen ways to live independently from your creator, that's sin. Sometimes it comes out in really gross ways, sometimes it comes out in socially acceptable ways. It's independence from God. You're trying to find independence from God, that's sin. That creates separation. You've chosen to be separated from God. Good news, Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of your independence from God, to pay the penalty of your sin, that is the, to, to bridge the separation so you could be reconciled to God. And all that you have to do is say, God, thank you for sending Jesus, I believe. The moment that you do, your debt of sin is removed and you're reconciled into a relationship with God and you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will be a part of Jesus Christ's eternal kingdom. Now, church, that took me 30 seconds, proclaim it. Build deep and abiding relationships with people who don't know Jesus Christ as their savior and get to the gospel, right? And love them and pray for them. Why? Because we have the only message of hope. Third, endure. Expect that as the end gets closer, life will get harder. Because Satan is living and active and he has power and he hates God and he hates God's people. So choose now that you will remain aligned completely 
with the kingdom of Jesus Christ and you will say no to Satan and yes to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us through John's revelation that your kingdom will come and that your kingdom will win and that your kingdom is good and that your kingdom is the place that we can all find life. And I pray, Father, that that would give us uh, hope today, but also I pray that it would give us courage to, to share that truth with the people around us. Father, also I ask you to make us discerning people. Help us understand uh, the cultures in which we live that, that, have, that have just so infiltrated even our own hearts and minds that we think we can find life outside of Jesus. Father, make us discerning people. Make us people who, who have incredible endurance to live faithfully for Jesus Christ to the very ends of our lives. Father, this morning we declare that we love Jesus and he is our king. He is our ruler. It's in Christ's name we offer these prayers. Amen.